King Gillette did not invent shaving. King Gillette did not even invent the safety razor. What King Gillette did is figured out that selling one razor is a lousy business, but selling a lifetime of blades makes an awful lot of sense. The first year that the Gillette razor was for sale, he sold 51 of them and 168 of the cheap replacement blades. The next year, he sold 90,000 razors and only 123,000 replacement blades, which meant that people were beating their faces up pretty good. Astonishingly, 11 years later, not just because of promotion, 11 years later, Gillette sold 450,000 razors, not that much growth, but an astonishing 70 million blades. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. And now a word from ZipRecruiter, our presenting sponsor. Everyone has a cronut. Have you found yours? Hey there, I'm Ian Siegel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I've learned a few things along the way about hiring and about life as an entrepreneur, and I'll be joining you throughout the season to share some of those insights. Like how a cronut can help you figure out what your specialty is. More on that later in the show. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a smarter way for businesses to find talent. Today, companies of all sizes and industries use ZipRecruiter to fill their hiring needs. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds great candidates for you and invites them to apply to your job. Try it free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Thanks and see you later in the show. Gillette has gotten a lot of credit for inventing something he did not invent, which is give away the razors and sell the blades. What is true is that he noticed that selling something again and again and again was far more profitable than selling something once. This simple idea led to our culture as it exists today. The ideas of lock-in, of ratcheting, of network effect, of sunk costs, of people wanting to be part of a system. And we need to understand it for two reasons. One, if we're not careful, we'll be a victim of it. And two, if we want to make a change happen, the best way to make that change happen is to use these effects to dance with the culture in a way that makes the culture want us to succeed. Alexander Graham Bell may or may not have invented the telephone, but he certainly invented the Bell system. And the Bell system isn't known by very many people. Here's how it worked. He did not wire every home in America. He couldn't possibly afford to do so. Instead, what Bell made was a notebook, a really thick notebook. And the notebook explained the protocols, the algorithms, the rules, the procedures for how to plug your local phone system, if you were in Vermont or Toledo, into the Bell system. Why would you want to do that? Well, the answer is simple. A telephone in Cleveland doesn't do you a lot of good if you're unable to use it to call your friend in Topeka. So local systems could use various techniques and technologies. But if they were all different, 
the phone system wouldn't create as much value as it could. That was an early example of how technology, in any form, whether it's the technology of a razor or a telephone, likes it better when it can connect with others. Fast forward 100 years or so, Bob Metcalf is working first at Xerox Park, where they ask him to come up with a way to connect all the computers in their office. At the time, all of the personal computers in the world, all the powerful ones, were in that one office because it was at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center that the modern personal computer was first conceived. Well, he did that, but soon after left to start a company, a company that would sell this idea to other companies because IBM PCs, Windows machines, Macs were showing up. They needed to be connected. So what he had pioneered, this thing he named Ethernet, was a conceptually simple but technically difficult way to connect lots of computers to one another. The box that 3Com made enabled two or three personal computers to connect to one another. And by today's standards, it was ridiculously expensive, thousands of dollars. And Ethernet, he saw, was going to change things. The personal computer was spreading. IBM PCs, eventually the Macintosh, there were going to be personal computers in offices everywhere. And 3Com's core product was a box that for a few thousand dollars would connect two or three PCs and a printer. The problem was, even by today's standards, that was ridiculously expensive. Back then, it was prohibitive. As a result, 3Com was in trouble. He was going to lose everything. One night, Bob came up with a new slide, a slide that he built before PowerPoint. And what that slide showed was pretty simple. Every time you added another 3Com switch, every time you added another computer to the network, it cost the same amount. It was linear. But the value of hooking one more person to the network went up exponentially. Think about a circle of people shaking hands after a ball game. If it's two people, that's one handshake. If it's five people, it's not four handshakes. It's more than a dozen. And that every time we add more people to the circle, the number of people you have to shake hands with goes up really fast. Metcalfe's law, named by George Gilder, is simple. The power of a network goes up by the square of the number of the people on the network. What Metcalf did in a simple graph was help us understand how powerful it is to connect, just as Alexander Graham Bell did 100 years ago with the notebook that he licensed to telephone entrepreneurs. Recently, the last living speaker of the Wichita language died. Why doesn't anyone else speak Wichita? Well, the answer is simple. Because parents make choices, and the choices they make about how they're going to teach their kids are based on what's going to be good for their kids. And given the choice between teaching your kid a language that lots of people speak 
or one that hardly anyone speaks, most people make the choice to teach the dominant language. It seems obvious. More connection creates more value. That's why there are fewer languages on earth today than at any other time before, because the value accrues as we connect to one another. So that's the network effect, the value that's created by connecting to others, by using what other people are using. But that's not the only way we make our choices. Another example is this idea of lock-in. Lock-in occurs when the cost of switching, switching to something that might be better, feels too high. So if at the age of 20, you buy a Nikon camera to start your career as a photographer, 10 years later, it's likely that you will own dozens and dozens of accessories and lenses that work only with Nikon cameras. So when Canon comes along with a slightly better camera, a slightly cheaper camera, a slightly more powerful camera, you don't even consider it because you're locked in, because the switching cost is just too high, that as a professional, it will be painful for you to switch from one to another. So one thing that manufacturers and marketers do is they work to cause us to embrace a lightning connector. They work to get us to embrace a whole bunch of things in our garage or in our office that in our heads will be just too hard to get rid of. And it doesn't have to be stuff. It could also be learning. If you're really good at using a Mac and your boss says, we're switching to Windows, the question isn't, is Windows any good? The question is, how much is it going to cost me in pain and suffering? How much is it going to cost me in incompetence to switch from this thing I know to this thing I don't. And that's when we see lock-in colliding with the network effect. Because if you are surrounded by people who are speaking a different language, whether that's a computer language or a spoken language, you're under ever more pressure to switch. And that's why we see technology standards and cultural standards flip and flop so fast. It looks like nothing's happening. And then one day, there's enough pressure that we have to become incompetent and learn a new thing because we want to move from here to there. After a snowfall, one thing you might discover is that the first person to walk across the field creates a trail that other people begin to use. And if you come back at the end of the day, you'll discover that most of the field is undisturbed but that path is now well-worn. Economists call this path dependency. And path dependency happens because little steps lead us to repeat them. And that creates this whole category of network effects and lock-in. There's a paradox here. There always is. The paradox is that the work required to get lock-in, to build path dependency, to create network effects, slows you down at first. It is much easier to be interoperable, to plug into the system as it currently exists, to say, you can pick anyone and we're anyone. 
Here's an example. On my new Android phone, I have a choice of at least a dozen text messaging apps. And if I switch from one to another, all of my existing texts instantly come in. There is no switching cost because it's built on the idea of openness. On my old phone, the iPhone, I still have trouble getting my text messages off of there onto my new phone because their system, iMessage, is closed. It's locked. You're in, and if you leave, you can't take the data with you. That distinction informs much of the work that freelancers do, much of the work that each of us do as we try to bring a new idea to the world. It's much easier to show up and say, this slots right in to what you're already doing. But the cost of that, in terms of changing the culture, building an organization, making an impact, is that you're not building any of the other artifacts that keep organizations moving forward. Of course, the decision-making gets even more subtle. If it turns out that you have been donating regularly to a political cause or voting a certain way your whole life, there isn't a technology problem. There isn't even a learning problem. What there is is a problem of cognitive dissonance, of saying, well, I do this, so therefore it must be right because I'm not a wrong person. I'm not an idiot. Therefore, I'm not going to reconsider my past choices. I will just continue doing what I always did. This is one reason why little head starts continue because that little head start gives you the momentum to build cultural pressure. That little head start gives you more practice. More practice makes you a little bit better. Being a little bit better gets you more trial. More trial gets you more network effect. More network effect builds a cultural imperative to do what people like us are doing. Things like this. And so the cycle continues. How is it possible to launch something new, something important, something vibrant and better in a marketplace where someone else is already dominant? Consider the case of WordPerfect. WordPerfect a software program, had won. The game was over. Everyone used WordPerfect, and for good reason. Because if someone in your office sent you a file, you needed to be able to open it. And the only way to open a WordPerfect file was in WordPerfect. Therefore, that path was well-grooved. That small head start led to a bigger head start. There was a great deal of lock-in. And mighty Microsoft was having virtually no luck competing with WordPerfect. But then something shifted. And what shifted had nothing to do with word processors. It had to do with operating systems. When DOS started to fade and people with PCs needed to switch to Windows because of the network effect, because they had to keep up or else their productivity would go down and they would fall behind, they had a challenge, and the challenge was they needed to switch their word processor because WordPerfect was withheld from the Windows world. The people at WordPerfect didn't want to help Microsoft with a new operating system. As a result, in that moment, all of the sunk costs, all of the lock-in became much less important. Now, 
It was a new choice, a new choice in a new moment. And we see this frequently. We see it in politics, we see it in charities, we see it in technology, we see it in organizations. When something shifts outside of the area where you are, many of the dependencies shift as well. And so we have this opportunity during times of shift. For example, Blockbuster completely dominated the world of VHS tapes. If you wanted to rent a movie, it made sense to rent it from Blockbuster. Once you had a Blockbuster rental card, you could use it in other places. Blockbuster used that head start to get more movies. More movies at a better price with more selection and more convenience. Why wouldn't you go to Blockbuster? Some more people went to Blockbuster and on and on and on. But then technology hit and the DVD came along. And the DVD promised to reshuffle a lot of things, not just the device in our home. And the folks at Netflix realized you could mail a DVD way cheaper than you could mail a VHS tape. They also knew they could buy DVDs cheaper from the studios because DVD pricing had shifted to a purchase, not a rental. Add all of that up, and Netflix was smart enough to be at the right place at the right time. And it's interesting to note that they're one of the rare companies that managed to do it twice. That as the internet got faster, Reed and the rest of his team at Netflix realized that they could also be disrupted because all of the lock-in that they had built around DVD rentals was going to be replaced if someone could come along and figure out how to stream video instead, hence their second big shift. So when we think about making a shift in the world, a change, either it's being done to us or by us, here are four questions you can think about as you look at where you are. The first one, what are the sunk costs that are getting in the way of you making a new decision? What's in your garage? What's in your head where you say, oh, I can't give this up because it's just going to be too expensive. Second, when you start down a path in those early days when you're committing to being with a bank for 30 years or a brand of razor for 20, do you default to picking systems that are open where you can easily swap one thing for another without being dependent? Or are you willing to take closed because someone gave you a discount, because someone paid a little bit to get you in the door, knowing they would earn that back with lock-in? Three, what's the sea change coming to your industry that's going to eliminate many of the path dependencies, sunk costs, and lock-in that will allow you to have a fresh start. Four, are you willing to invest in creating a network effect, in building something that works better if other people have one? I mean, that's how the fax machine grew. It grew because we told each other we needed a fax machine because it was good for us if other people had a fax machine. That when we decide to invest in language and connection and an ecosystem and a network effect, It's going to cost us. But what comes out at the other end is a shift in the culture. As you might have guessed, I'm torn. On one hand, I don't like being manipulated. I don't like it when a company like Apple takes my data and won't give it to me. I don't like it when I have to buy new stuff just to fit a device. 
I don't like it when a company piles on behavioral economics to trick me into using sunk costs to avoid making new decisions. I don't like the fact that there's lock-in and we get stuck with things like fax machines that are antiquated for years longer than we would have if it weren't for the network effect. On the other hand, and it's really big on the other hand, the things that we love and that we trust and they give us power and leverage and productivity, all of them benefit from the network effect. All of them have a ratchet. All of them work because people like us use things like this. They become part of the culture, and culture is the ultimate network effect. So I guess it's on us. It's on us to speak up about how it's supposed to be used and how it's not supposed to be used. And it's on us to use it wisely. Go make a ruckus. In a minute, we'll be back with your questions from the previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hi again. This is Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Every business fundamentally only sells one thing. There's something your business does, some service it provides, some product it has, that is the identity of your business. And the hardest thing for most new business owners is to figure out what their one thing is. Let me give you an example. You've been to a lot of bakeries in your life, and I said, hey, you want to come to a bakery with me? You're probably not that excited. But if I told you we were going to the Cronut Bakery, where the Cronut was invented, that's an identity for that business. That makes that business interesting. That's the importance of identifying your one thing. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's top job boards. So great candidates have a lot of different ways to find your job. To get started, go to ZipRecruiter.com Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Try it out. See how it feels and experience how simple hiring can be. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. My question is, how can someone go about being in a category of one or creating a category of one? Thank you. This is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Well, or maybe the $10,000 question. How do you become a category of one? So here's a quick case study. There's this new device called the Glowforge. A couple thousand bucks. It's a laser cutter. You can do really cool things with it. A bunch of people have one now. And some of them are trying to make a living as a freelancer, carving woods, carving metal, making little signs, things like that. Well, at first, what will happen is there will be scarcity. Almost no one has a Glowforge, and so you can make better than minimum wage carving things for other people. But if it catches on, here's what will happen. Other people will get one. Scarcity will disappear. So what we'll end up with is what we found, for example, for photo editing on Photoshop. If you need a bunch of photos retouched, you can go to Upwork, post your job, and within minutes, people from around the world, people from South Africa, from Romania, from Asia, will post, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it for $11. I'll do it for $9. I'll do it for $6. 
because it's a commodity. You've never worked with this person before. You're never going to work with them again. The only way you have to compare them is their price. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So the way we become a category of one is by accepting the fact that our tool is not unique, that the asset we have so far is simply that, an asset that other people have too. What we have to do is then build upon that by figuring out how to be the one and only. And there are a few ways to do it. One way is to have a skill nobody else has. Another way is to have a reputation nobody else has. That when someone hires you to do your work, they will tell other people that your work is better because they picked you. What is it about what you do that is worth mentioning to one's peers? Oh, I got Jill Greenberg to take this photo. If the same photo was taken by someone who looked like Jill Greenberg's work, it wouldn't count as much because claiming that I had worked with the famous photographer is worth something. So it's not easy at all. We have to go way to an edge, hang out over the edge of the boat and say, I'm the only one who does it this way. I'm the only one who has this standing. And the best way to do it is to seek the smallest possible audience. Not the largest one, the smallest one. A tiny subset of a tiny subset of a group of people where you can become famous to that group, famous to the tribe, famous to a tiny group of people who will get a benefit from knowing they hired a freelancer, not because they have a Glowforge and no one else does, but because they're the one and only. Hi, Seth. Steve Vinson from Indianapolis, Indiana. I've been a project manager for over 25 years, the last 15 of which I've been a freelancer. I'm at the point in my career where I'd like to create more value for more people while selling fewer of my limited inventory of hours. And that's the flip side, isn't it? The flip side is maybe you don't want to spend all of your time as a freelancer selling by the hour and that you'd like to serve more people, not by charging people more per hour, but by having something more people can buy. This is the transition. It's the transition from freelancer to entrepreneur, that you build a scalable asset, an institution, an enterprise. You figure out a way for that work to be done, not by the hour, but where you are using something you have over and over again. So a simple example, what most lawyers used to do, and many still do, is if you need basic work done in corporation or something like that, they open their word processor, they change a couple words, they print it out. And when they're done, they charge you by the hour, not many hours, because that's the ethical way for an independent freelance lawyer to charge. When I incorporated Yoyodyne all those years ago, we only paid $1,000 for an 800-page document, because of the 800 pages that they generated of all our incorporation and all of our bylaws and all of this and all of that, they only had to change two or three hours worth of work. They had a system in place and they charged us by the hour. But the other way to do it is to do what some companies are doing now, which is to say, we'll incorporate you flat fee. This is how much it costs. Obviously, they're not starting from scratch every time someone shows up. They have built an enterprise. It's not custom. It's not bespoke. It's not somebody started from scratch when you called them on the phone. 
It's an enterprise, and they have to act accordingly by investing and reinvesting in their asset, by coming up with ways to scale it, by doing all of the things entrepreneurs do. So both of these questions are fantastic because what they highlight is that there really is a distinction. We either have to do the incredibly difficult emotional labor of being willing to be the one and only, or we have to take a deep breath and become an entrepreneur. Thanks, as always, for your questions. If you have questions about this episode, I would love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. People are talking about the marketing seminar. I was completely blown away. It is incredibly comprehensive. Crazy, crazy, crazy useful. It's, it's easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately and get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course. And the big shock is the cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done. And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it in other projects. A way to really evaluate it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else. It's so much more than just a marketing seminar. Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.